Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. The sermon series focus, remember, is knowing who we follow how Jesus describes himself. And we're going to begin this series by looking at Jesus' preferred way of speaking of himself. No one ever gave him this title. Jesus clearly chooses this title for himself. So much so, in fact, you could argue it's Jesus' favorite self-designation. Surprisingly, Jesus almost never refers to himself as the Christ or the Messiah. He never refers to himself personally as the Christ or the Messiah. But some 80 times, 80 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself in the third person using the term son of man. So let's listen to an example of this this identification that Jesus seemed to prefer, son of man, from a well-known conversation Jesus once had with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. It's on the screen or in your Bible or on your tablet. Here we go. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How how can someone be born When they are old, Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses was lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, the person who is going to be coming up and speaking with me is one of our elders. In fact, it's the president. Oh, this is nice, i got to say. This is nice. Some people think I did this so I didn't have to stand up all the time, and I ain't going to lie. It was, a, was definitely a, a bonus. Sorry. Anyway, the person I'm going to invite, invite up here is one of our elders. In fact, she is the president of our, of our council. Uh, she just with the new term. Someone you know very, very well also sings on our praise team and assists in many different ways. Can you please give a praise offering for Christine McGraw for being our first person to come up here? Can I just say, it's about time. I've been yammering at you from that pew for years as you <laughs> preach. I'm so glad I'm finally up here to talk with you, like, for real about this. If right? you didn't know that, um, when Drew is preaching or I'm preaching, the person who makes actual responses back All those noises. is Christine McGraw. That's me. 
And you're more than welcome to do that, provided you're not, you know, heckling or something like that. Um, Please do. I can during, some company. During this, during this sermon. Christine, thanks for, for doing this. The first question, remember, is the listening question based on this passage, this idea of Jesus as the Son of Man. It's the huh, what question. So in reading this, where Jesus has this exchange with Nicodemus and then refers to himself as the Son of Man, what question do you have to better help you understand this passage? Do you remember what we talked about, what the question was? I do remember what we talked about. Um, well, I think, I think, first of all, to really kind of come to why this say what question is my say what question, I just kind of want to... I like that say what, okay. I'll the go say what question um, is to sort of understand how I arrived at the say what question. So just really briefly, sort of as I'm reading this passage, what kind of led me to this question? Um, if you've ever, I've, I've, taught, I've taught Bible classes at the church here for periodically over a long time, and if you've heard me teach, one of my big things is context. Context is super important for me, and so the context of the verse is um, really kind of the first place that I'm drawn when I'm looking at scripture. And so, um, for starters, I love the fact that this is a conversation. That's the first thing I love. I love that they're discussing. I love that this is the format that we're talking about a conversation, is mm-hmm. in conversation. So I thought that was really important. Um, Nicodemus starts in his, um, I mean, the first thing that's, that anybody speaks in this passage is Nicodemus saying to Jesus that how he must have come from God in order to do what he does. Um, and, and instead of, like, Jesus saying, well, yeah, or thanks, or whatever, he goes off sort of in an odd direction, and he makes a very provocative statement um, about um, birth, about being born again, about flesh being born from flesh, spirit being born from spirit. Um, we, we, you know, um, all these things about how we enter the kingdom through this new birth, and Nicodemus is confused, and we can't go back into our mother's womb. What are you talking about? And um, instead of, again, really sort of answering that question for Nicodemus, Jesus comes back with this very messianic statement. Um, he foreshadows his own death. He talks about Moses and the snake, all these different things. And then, as you read and, and pointed out before you read scripture, he talks about, um, or he refers to himself twice as the son of man. And so, one of the things, I really read this conversation because John 3 is such a familiar chapter to all of us for so many different reasons, but as I read this again, sort of with fresh eyes, the say what question that really came to me was, um, why, why does, what, what does that mean? Why does he refer to himself as the son of man in, in study before? Um, I've heard this be referred to as one of the most important, if not the most important thing Jesus will say about himself. Mm. So why? Why is that so important? And, and what does it mean and why is it so important? So, again, this is a question we talked about already. So let me share what I shared with Christine and share it again with you, Christine. Son of man is a, a rather common term in the Bible to begin with. If you were to look through the scriptures, you'd see that term a lot. In, it's actually... Uh, Bar and Ash is the Aramaic, and, and what that basically translates into is human being. So basically, when you see Son of Man throughout most of the scriptures, it's just referring to a human being, to humanity. It emphasizes the humanity of a person. If you were to look, for example, in the, the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is referred to by God as the Son of Man like 90 times. And it's just saying, you're, you're, you're a human being, you're a man, engaging me as the, as the, the creator of all things. Yet Jesus uses the term son of man, as we talked about, more than 80 times in the Gospels. But here's what's different. When Jesus uses the son of, son of man, he uses the definite article. He doesn't say son of man. He says the son of man. 
And what he's doing there, the key why that definite article is so important is it's actually he's using it as a title. And to see how Son of Man is used differently in the Bible, where it stands out, you have to go all the way back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Um, and again, a little bit of background so you understand Daniel. The book of Daniel, it's a very interesting book, cryptic book. We've looked at it before on Sunday mornings. Daniel's basically a Babylonian POW. Israel are prisoners of war in Babylon. And in chapter 7, he has this strange, initially terrifying, if you remember Daniel chapter 7, this terrifying dream about four beasts. Does everyone, anyone remember this at all? Is it ringing some bells? Okay. Well, in this dream, if you're not familiar with it, Daniel has this dream of four beasts, and each one of these beasts is, in fact, more frightening than the next. And what he continues to see is these beasts unleash, unleash massive destruction upon the world, leaving just death in their wake. And just really, I'm giving you the shorthand version of this. On the one hand, these four beasts symbolize four violent, prideful kings who will rise to power in the immediate future of history. But at another level, and this is often the case with these prophetic texts and these visions, at the same time, while it's referring to the four kings that will come, that will rise, it's also, these kings are also representative of all worldly rulers. All worldly rulers. It's reflective of humankind's repeated tendency not to be able to realize its potential for good, for great things, humanity's inability to realize the good and great things it was created for, and after all, that's possible because we're made in the image of God, but instead, humanity has this tendency through its rulers, rulers representing the people, by the way, humanity always has this inevitable tendency to retreat to its more basic, more baser, more animal, more beastly instincts. And, and that's a great way, by the way, just a little sidebar to think about sin. You know, there's different ways we talk about what's the problem, what do we need saving from. We need saving from the beast inside. We need saving from the beastly urge that can consume us, that brings out our darker side, that brings out the worst in us. Now, in the midst of this vision, again, of four beasts, one worse than the other, Daniel also sees one like a son of man. That's what he says, a human being who rises and sits on the divine throne, defeats all the beasts, and reigns over all creation. Now, where it gets interesting, because again, son of man refers to humanity, is Daniel actually sees all humanity worship this son of man along with God. And that immediately should trigger something, because that means if humanity is worshiping this person, then this is no ordinary human being. This is someone who's human, yet also divine. So this is going somewhere. And that's exactly, as you heard Christine mention, what Jesus implicitly claims to be in his response to Nicodemus, right? What does Jesus say? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. What is Jesus saying there? I am human, but I am, hu- I am God come down. That's implicitly what he's implying there. And then Jesus refers to being lifted up as the Son of Man, as Christine said. In fact, when I tell you that Jesus uses the Son of Man as a title, self-designation more than 80 times, if you flip through the Gospels, Jesus uses that title, the Son of Man, always coupled with the context of being turned over into the hands of others and then suffering and dying. Now, if you were paying attention, in light of the vision of Daniel 7, that seems rather odd. Because Daniel 7, that one like a son of man is supposed to conquer the beasts, right? The beastly urge inside of us. Yet Jesus talks about being the son of man who's going to be handed over and killed. So initially, Jesus seems like he's talking about Daniel 7, but it's not quite right. Because again, the, Daniel, the Son of Man outlined in Daniel 7 is supposed to triumph over the nations, not to be subject to them in a humiliating condition. Interesting note, though, if you read Daniel 7, Daniel never in the dream, is, it never is revealed to him how the Son of Man conquers the beast inside of us, how he conquers the four beasts. 
We just see him sit on the throne. So how do we understand what Jesus is doing here? Well, and I'm almost done, you got to go all the way back to understand Son of Man as being human. You have to go all the way back to God's covenant promise after our original ancestors walked away from God. Adam and Eve we're talking about. After the, in the aftermath of that tragedy, God says, among other things, this promise in Genesis chapter 3. And he's actually referring to the beast, the snake, that led them to turn away from God. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, who's the he, her offspring, he, who's the he, humanity, the next Adam, the son of man, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So understand the image that's being given here. Victory is going to come. It's said right from Genesis chapter 3. Victory is going to come over the beast by crushing the head, but crushing the head is going to happen by being struck in the heel. Did you hear that? You're going to crush his head, but you're going to get struck. He will, you will be struck in the heel. So think about this, all of this. Daniel 7, son of man, I've told you, Genesis. And think about what the life of Jesus, the work of Jesus was like. Jesus, before he starts anything, resists temptation, but he resists the temptation that goes all the way back to the garden. He resists the urge of the beast, right? He says he rejects that, the way of the beast, which Israel failed at, remember. And then what does Jesus do after resisting the urge of the beast? Jesus goes on in the three years before before he goes to the cross. He banishes the beast inside other people's lives. That's why you see the exorcisms that take place, the casting out. He releases people from the beast inside, He teaches in those three years how to rule the beast inside instead of being forever ruled by it. It's a great way to think about his teaching. That's what he's teaching us. And then he ultimately confronts the beast when he goes to the cross. And there's that pivotal moment, right, at his trial. Do you remember when they basically ask him, are you you the son of God? And he quotes Daniel 7 and says, but you will see one like the son of man. He quotes that exact moment in Daniel 7, that moment of this will be the victory. This will be the victory where the beast inside will be conquered. And he he lives that out by going to the cross. And the cross, we learn about this a lot, the cross was a Roman torture torture device. It was a beastly way of dying. And the crucifixion, Jesus goes to the cross to expose our, what we might call, our subhuman beastly tendencies. I mean, a crowd is gathered. People are gathered for this. This draws a crowd. Jesus embraces the worst we can do when he dies on the cross. He's bitten at the heel But through this act of selfless, divine, sacrificial love, Jesus overcomes the beast's ultimate power. He crushes the head of the beast. How? By killing and destroying death through resurrection. So to bring this all together, Jesus as the Son of Man highlights the humanity of Christ. But not just the fact that Jesus was human like you and me. Jesus as the Son of Man is the epitome of humanity. It's humanity perfected. It's the reflection and the means for us to become who we were created to be as humanity. Let that sit for a little bit. That's the significance of this. Is Jesus is coming and not just, not just being human like you and me, but actually perfecting our humanity and giving us the ability, showing us what it looks like, but giving us the means to become who we were created to be as human beings. So we talked about that. Oh, did we talk about this? (laughs) And out of that, the learning question is what comes next. It's that reflecting, connecting question, the so what. So I'm, I'm asking you from when we talked... What connections or insights are you making from that insight that I've just shared? To, how, to what, is it, what does the Son of Man mean? What's that all about? Where did you, you land on that? Well, I landed in a lot of different places, as I'm sure you can imagine. 
Um, and in the course of our conversation, we reflected on a lot of this together, and, and we talked about this, and I got a lot of, well, that's great, but can we sort of narrow that down? Can we get this in a place where we can put it in a sermon that's not, you know, the two hours that we're sitting here in this coffee house, because we get going and we can really get going. And um, so, so how do we sort of hone in on, on everything that you just said, which is so rich, and we could, you know, preach five sermons on everything you just said. But as I came away from our meeting and, and really kind of started to think about this and, and really getting to the crux of what was really speaking to me, um, I, again, with context, I went, I, I, I went back to the text that we were looking at, and, and at the very beginning, something really kind of jumped out at me. And so, um, as I hear you talking about sort of overcoming that beast that's within each of us, overcoming the, the, um, the failings of our own humanity, um, this passage in John, it gives us a little clue to the beast that's inside Nicodemus at this point. And so, when the scripture tells us that um, Jesus met him at night. Um, what, what we can deduce from that is the fact that Nicodemus doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, doesn't want the people that he works with to know that he's hanging out with this guy. And so in that we have this, this weakness, this whatever this is in Nicodemus that, that does not want um, to be judged for his uh, relation with Jesus. He doesn't want people to think less of him because of his relationship with Jesus. And in, in a very Jesus way, he never, he, he never, Jesus never really addresses that in this conversation with Nicodemus because really what Jesus does in pretty much any encounter that we see Jesus having with somebody in scripture is he meets that person exactly where they are in their life, where they are emotionally, where they are intellectually with who they think Jesus is. And, and why that's important is because um, it, it, when you're talking about Jesus and his humanity, and his humanity is uh, manifested in a way that um, it's never been done before, in doing that, Jesus is giving us clues all over scripture, in all of his interactions with people, about what it means to be human like Jesus. So that was one of the first things I walked away with, was that Jesus is going to meet me wherever I am in whatever it is that I'm uh, coming to him with. Um, and he's not going to expect me to have been somewhere other than where I am. And I think he's very... Um, I think we can really see that in this, in this text with Nicodemus, that uh, Jesus is very provocative, but he's not uh, judgmental, I think, in the way we're afraid often that Jesus is going to be when we approach him. So I think, I think it's interesting, and I, and I agree with you, that, that you see in this passage, and part of this, of, of revealing true humanity, if we want to say that, is Jesus meets us where we are, as he certainly meets Nicodemus where he is, but there's at the same time this tension of not necessarily condemning or separating because of where we are, but of this push to, to, put, to become more, to be more in terms, and to be more in the sense of to be who we are truly meant to be as human beings. And something that you mentioned that I wanted you to talk about is you said, because we stopped, I don't know if any of you noticed when we were reading it, we stopped at verse 15. We did not read the verse that everybody knows that comes after it, which is 16. And you said that oh, you thought I'm that getting there. you were very interested. Oh, so, oh I'm, I'm ready to jump right into that. But before I do, sort of the other thing that I think kind of goes hand in glove with what I really um, began to appreciate about this, um, I, was, I was reading for a devotional that I was doing sort of completely unrelated to this, and one of the passages that I read came from the second chapter of Hebrews, and this, I mean, it, it was almost like this, the, the, the words were like bright gold or something on my, on my page, because it jumped out so hard at me, and, and the author 
of the Hebrews um, is very um, direct in that he's speaking to the Jewish people. But at the end of chapter 2, the verses 17 and 18, in talking, the whole chapter 2 talks about you know, Jesus coming as a man, Jesus coming as humanity, coming into our human world, and the end of this chapter tells us why he had to do this. It, I, I love verses like this, when they actually say, this is why. There's verses like that in, in scripture, and this is one of them. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And then 18 is like... Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So this idea that Jesus meets us where we are, and then this, this very, um, I think, direct scripture that tells us the reason Jesus came was so that he could experience life the way we experience it for the express purpose of coming alongside us, helping us, being with us, um, comforting us in, in, our, in our human experience. And the two, these two things together highlight something that is so important to me, and it's so important about this passage. I love that we stopped at verse 15, um, because again, context is so important for what comes in verses 16 and 17. Um, this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, I think we can easily... Uh, misinterpret it, misunderstand it, think it means something that it doesn't. Um, but the key thing that I, I just can't escape in this is that this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus is deeply relational. It's not transactional. And I'm afraid all too often when we read 316 or we see it, you know, held up at the end of the end zone, you know, in a touchdown situation or whatever, is that we get this idea that, um, uh, We, we, we get this idea when we, when we see John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that those who believe in him um, might not perish but have eternal life. And it's easy for us to say God so loved and then we get this out of this. God does something, we get a result out of that. That's a very transactional way of, of approaching this verse. And because I think we've become so familiar with this whole passage about being born again and about the, what 3.16 says and its implications, I think that um, we the relational quality of this gets lost on us. And so when the, when the verse starts, for God so loved the world, even this may even be a, a translational issue, it's not necessarily saying God loved us so much, although God indeed does love us so much. What it's really saying, the, the, the verb form in this is saying, God loved the world like this. This is what God did to love us. Not God loves us so much, we get this. And it's, it's a very subtle distinction, and I hope, I hope I'm being articulate enough that you can hear where I'm coming from with this. But the idea that God loved us this way, that he sent his son, and he not only sent his son, he sent his son in such a way that he would be able to relate directly to what our experience is in our day-to-day -day life. And so that, I think... Um, that, you know, this, this, this passage from, from Hebrews talks about Jesus being merciful, about him being faithful, and about him um, 
suffering temptation and under, having, having these same um, experiences that we have so that when he comes alongside us in our grief, in our anger, in our frustration, in our confusion, um, in our joy, in, in, in whatever situation we find ourselves in, Jesus is able to relate to us in a very real way that, that we, his, his humanity is, is, is like ours in that his experience is um, no different than ours. And, and of course, there's many, many ways that his experience is very different than ours. Um, and I, I don't mean to say this to somehow diminish his divinity because that, I, I would never want to do that. But I think that the, the importance, why we're having this conversation, why being human like Jesus is so important, is first to understand that Jesus felt what we felt. And, and on, I think intellectually we, we understand that sometimes, but I think quite often we forget what that means for us, what, we, what, what power we have in Jesus because of that, how we are able to, um, to move forward because of, because of the implications of his humanity. So let me try to bring that together. I think what you said, there's a lot there. The shorthand of what I heard you say, which I think is a great way to think of this, is that understanding Jesus is the Son of Man, understanding Jesus as being fully human, truly human, is rec- and especially looking at John 3.16, I like what you said. It's not, we tend to look at our relationship with God even unconsciously transactionally. You know, and, and you even, there's a lot of that sometimes in the church, tra- transactional. You know, God did this for you. Therefore, receive Jesus. Accept Jesus in your heart. God doesn't see you, you, you dirty, rotten sinner. Thank God he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus standing in your place. That's the transaction. Jesus look, is in front of you, and God sees Jesus, not you. The transaction. So, and so you give your heart to Jesus. Jesus gives you eternal life. You give your heart to Jesus. Jesus forgives you of your, of your sins. But what you're saying is to understand Jesus as the Son of Man, fully human, it's not what God offers us. I like the language of relational. Is it's not about, the gospel is not about transaction. It's about transformation. It's not about a transaction. It's about a transformation. Well, and I think, unfortunately, all too often, not only do we have that, that God did this for me and there's this whole transaction piece, but our response often becomes very transactional. Well, then, my gosh, I have to do something for Jesus. Right. I have to turn around and serve. I have to right. do. There's, we have to pile all this stuff on because we think, well, my gosh, if Jesus did this for me, then I have right. to do something for Jesus. And, even and if, that is absolutely not and, a true and statement. And even, even in the church, even when we on the Protestant side really emphasize really hard that what Jesus does for us, there's nothing we can do to earn or merit or deserve it, the transaction that we're given, there's still the sense on the other side. It can still sound transactional. It's all grace, but we're, you know, we better live out of the grace. It's, again, it can sound transactional, right? Not that we, that, we, that we earn it or merit it, but that we need to return in kind. But if we look at this transformationally, it's, and I like how you said, this is how God loves us. It's God loves us not just by doing something for us, and that's how we can hear John 3.16. God loves you, so he did this for you, but that God loves us by freeing us, by modeling for us, by empowering us to be changed for the better, for the best. And I think that, you're right, that oftentimes when you look at it transactionally, it's like, okay, I've been forgiven, okay, I've been saved. And, and, and if it's a transaction, it's kind of this thing we have on our resume. Yep, I'm forgiven, but I'm forgiven, oh, but I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And, and yet, if it's not transactional, if it's transformational, Jesus doesn't just want to add something to your resume, he wants to change your resume. He wants to change your biography. You know, again, think back to this idea of our humanity. We were made in the image of God. This is a fundamental understanding of Scripture. Human beings are made in the image of God. That means that we are to be God-centered, to be God-dependent, God-glorifying human beings because we're made in the image of God. But what's the problem? We turned away from God. 
We turned away from God. We became, we become le- we became less than fully human. And we actually s- express this. Now, you've heard me say this before in how we talk when we say stuff like, well, I'm only human. Well, we're only human. We say it as sort of a, de- well, well, sucks to be me. You know, it's just, I'm just a human being. I'm just a broken person. And so instead of being the good stewards that we were created to be, in the image of God, we were created to be stewards, right, of all creation. God says, all of this is yours. Cultivate it. Be fruitful. Instead of cultivating creation and being fruitful out of a sense of grace, out of a sense of love, out of a sense of respect, when we turn away from God, we presumptively act like owners. We act like this is all ours, our stuff. We take and we consume it out of a sense of entitlement. We actually get upset with God. Why isn't God doing this? Why isn't God providing this? We assume that this is ours to do with what we want. And what ends up happening? We talk a lot about this and we need to reflect on this. When we say we're less than human, how does that manifest itself? What we start to do is we use everything and everyone as a means to an end. Consciously or unconsciously, we use everything and everyone trying to get from what we do, our work defines our identity, what we amass, our stuff, what others say about it. We try to get from everything and everyone what only God can give us and what only God offers us for free. Our identity, our sense of contentment, those are the things that God offers us for free. Our destiny, that we know where we're going. We've lost what it means to be human as God intended, as God created us to be. And so Jesus, God so loves us that in Christ, he reveals for us the truth about what it truly means to be human. This is what humanity looks like. You're not only human. This is what I created you to be. But even more than that, Jesus doesn't just show us. He enables us to be fully human. When Christ speaks of a full and abundant life, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about a full abundant life, your version of a full abundant life. I want to have a full bank account. I want to have lots of stuff. And I want to make sure that everybody loves me. That's the full abundant life in human terms because it's back to where are we getting our identity and our destiny from. And it's transactional. And it's transactional, right? Hey, God, and how many of us have prayed this way at least once in our life? If you do this for me, Lord... What I'm going to do for you, oh my gosh. Transactional. And Jesus and God has no interest in transactions. Mm -mm. You have nothing. We have nothing to give God that God doesn't already have. We're giving back everything to God that God gives to us. So God isn't interested in a transaction. He's interested in a transformation. So Jesus reveals the truth. This is what it's all about. It's about you learning how to live the way you were intended to be, the people you were created to be. But Jesus also enables us to be fully human to have that full abundant life because one of the most underappreciated and undershared parts of the gospel, when someone asks you what's the good news, if you're the standard typical follower of Jesus, you will say, you will mention the cross and hopefully the resurrection. A lot of times it's just the cross, but hopefully the resurrection. But there is a third missing piece of the stool here. (laughs) What is the good news? Not just the cross, not just the resurrection. Those are the things where Jesus reveals the truth and kicks in the door on the thing, the, 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 the curse of the beast, death. But what enables us to be fully human? How does Jesus enable us to be fully human, to have that full and abundant life? When you talk about the good news, you have to talk about Pentecost. And that ties right back to this passage when Jesus says, you have to be born again. Mm. You have to be born again. Because Pentecost is where Jesus gives us his spirit. It's the birth of a new humanity. For those Switchfoot fans out here, I think it's Switchfoot, there's a new way to be human, that was the song, right? 
It's this birth of a new humanity. I know I totally dated myself there. <laughs> Some of you are like, who's Switchfoot? Wow, Spotify we quote Amy Grant next. But there's, Pentecost is the birth of a new humanity. And also on Pentecost, don't miss this, it's not just the birth of a new humanity, but it's the birth of a new humanity. It's a transformation because humanity is being born to be transformed into Christ's body. Because Pentecost is the birth of the church. The implications of this difference between transaction versus transformation is that when you think of this, we are part of a new humanity. If we are born again, as Jesus talks to Nicodemus, through the Spirit, we're liberated, we're guided, we're guided, we're liberated, we're not just set free. And most of us sit on the freedom part. We're free, forgiven, don't have to be afraid of death, but we're also guided to follow the instructions, the way of Jesus, and we're empowered to overcome the beast inside and the manifestations of the beast externally. And last thing I just want to say before I come back to you, Christine, is when I, when I say all of that, this idea of we're guided and empowered, that part that we don't tend to focus on, when we, uh, this understanding of following the way of Jesus, the understanding of empowered to overcome the beast, Understand that what that fundamentally looks like. Jesus teaches us this. He tells us this. He shows us. We overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way as Jesus. Mm. And this is an important word for these days. As As new human beings, full human beings in Christ, if we're following in the way of Jesus, then we do not conquer the beast inside or outside through violence or retaliation. Mm. There is no place in the body of Christ for violence or retaliation. Those are impulses and urges of the beast, not of Christ. You look at the cross and remember, first blood is drawn, but first blood is drawn by Jesus. Jesus draws his own blood first. He doesn't get victory by force, but he gets victory by willingly offering his life in sacrificial love and forgiveness. Jesus' surprising means to conquer Meaning everyone at the time thinks he's done, right? On Friday, we all think it's it. But his, his way of winning, his way of conquering is vindicated, meaning it's proven righteous, to use biblical language, through his resurrection. The resurrection says, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. And so when Jesus turns to us and says, if you want to be born again, and I'm putting passages together here now, if you want to live this new life, the fullness of humanity that I've given you, full and abundant life, you have to die to yourself. Mm. You cannot live the life the way you lived it before. You have to die to yourself, and you have to live differently. And the assumption, the call, the commission, is that if we're going to follow Jesus, we're not only shown how, but we're empowered to do the same, to follow the same path, to steward the world Jesus-style. To steward the world Jesus-style. Not fighting for our rights, not demanding our privacy, not saying, hey, this is my kingdom, my fiefdom, but by saying it's all God's, And I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to seek the good of others because God's got my back. God's going to bring goodness into my life. So I'm not going to be worried about protecting mine and my own because God's got goodness for me. So I'm going to seek the goodness of others. I'm going to share what God gives me and I'm going to serve and I'm I'm going to give out of self. I'm not going to worry about my past. I'm not going to be stressed out about the present because guess what? My future is secure in Christ. No matter what happens... Death doesn't have the last word in my life. No matter what happens, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Mm. Those are not just things we say. Those are things we're called to live. The evangelistic hook, honestly, I never think we're getting it wrong. The evangelistic hook, when we share the good news, we often share what Jesus did. The evangelistic hook, the good news, is who Jesus is. Yes. 
All we need to know about God is found in Christ. But at the same time, all we want to know about who we are, who we can be, who we were meant to become, is found in Jesus Christ. And so, you know, for me, I'm, I'm hearing you, if you want to understand this idea of a transaction versus transformation, the transaction is you're taking what Jesus offers and you're kind of storing it somewhere till you, in case of emergency. But if you're looking to be transformed by Christ, then you're looking to follow Christ and you're looking to yield to Christ's spirit and relinquish the illusion of the beast, the lies of the beast about who God is and who we are, and instead living into the truth of who Jesus says God is, who Jesus says we were meant to be, who we can be as God created us. So that kind of brings us, I mean, we're watching the time here to the last question, following, applying, and exercising the what now question. This is a big one. What might it look like for you, Christine, to follow Jesus more closely in your day-to-day life, given what you're learning from this conversation and from your time in this passage? Well, I think when I really kind of started to, to chew on that and, and come up with an, an articulate answer, um, this thing sort of niggling in the back of my head, when you talk about um, transaction versus transformation, um, I, I knew that in Scripture, Nicodemus himself has this transformation. Right. So the thing, what, what I think really enforces what it is you just said is that Nicodemus himself has a transformation. We think, oh, maybe, you know, John 3.16 is the only place Nicodemus shows up. He shows up in chapter 7 when he pushes back against the Pharisees. The Pharisees are having a conversation about how they're going to deal with Jesus. What are they going to do with this rabble-rouser? We've got to do something. And, and Nicodemus starts to push back. So the guy who didn't want to be seen with Jesus in chapter 3 is now p- pushing back. He's defending Jesus. He's, he's, he's encouraging them to look at this in a different way. And then we see him again in John 19 when he's taking Jesus off the cross. So transformation is in here. We can't miss it. And it's not just narrative. It's active language. When God says I loved you like this, not just I love you so much. The way that he loves us is what quantifies his love for us. And the way that he loves us is by giving us Jesus. So to answer the question, the, the what now question then, um, how, how, how does this impact me? How does this transform me? I think in a real practical sort of the, the first place that I, I might put my finger down and say, well, this is one place where I've been, I, I can see trajectory in my life, I can see growth, is that my prayer life has become much more conversational. My prayer life is not checklisty like it used to be. You know, we have all these nice little acronyms and different things, and you know, do this and this and this and this, and, and run through this whole thing, and you'll have this nice complete prayer to put in front of Jesus. Um, and my personality likes to complete the assignment, so those were always really, you know, important for me and my prayer life was really dry. And so when my prayer life became more conversational, um, part of that means that I have to shut up and let Jesus speak to you. You can imagine my, my challenges with that sometimes. As my husband laughs harder than anybody. Jesus? Words? Edgewise? What are you talking about? Um, 
But conversational prayer, I think, is, has been a big piece for me and sort of letting down this idea that prayer has to, has a stru- have to have a structure and a form, that I can have a conversation with Jesus just the way I have a conversation with you in a coffee shop or with my husband in the car or whatever, that we can converse and eventually I have to shut up and let Jesus speak into my life because when he does that, um, well, so what does that sound like, Christine? Oh my gosh, you know, does Jesus have a voice? Yes, Jesus has a voice. It's the spirit that he left for us on Pentecost. Jesus' spirit speaks to us. Jesus' spirit speaks to us through the words on this page. Um, the whole reason for bringing in this, this passage from Hebrews chapter 2 is because it was an answer to questions that I had had in my head. The answer was right here. Jesus' words or the, the words of the Holy Spirit are in Scripture. They speak through pastors. They speak through friends. Um, and so when I, became, when I allowed myself to become as conversational with Jesus as outgoing me is with pretty much anybody that I encounter, things really started to change. Um, and when I started to really hear what Jesus was saying, when I started to really look at what the character of Christ was composed of, um, like Pastor Chris says, no, it, it's not violence, it's not retaliation. Um, when we really look at Scripture as more than just a, you know, how am I supposed to behave? How am I supposed to live my life? When we look at the Gospels, um, when we look at the Gospel of John and what it, what it does to really lay out the character of Christ for us, um, I, in, in preparation for this, I went back to the Upper Room Discourse, which is chapters 14 through 18 of the Gospel of John. If you haven't read it in a while, pull it out and read it. It is this absolute, like, microscopic, I mean, the, he, the lens comes in so tight on what Jesus is saying to his friends. And there is no escaping that what Jesus is saying to his friends in myriad different ways, love each other. Over and over and over in so many ways, love each other, love each other, love each other the way I've loved you. Come and love me more. Stay in me. Abide with me. Be, be more like me. And I will give you the power to do that. I'm, I'm leaving, but somebody is coming behind me to help you with this. We cannot miss how much, how, how deep God's, Jesus' focus in this place is on loving each other. Loving each other. So, from my day-to-day life, what does this look like? It means that when I'm in a, in a situation that's frustrating, that's contentious, when I'm working with other people, when I'm, you know, doing whatever, when I'm leading the church, when I'm at work, when I'm with my kids, Jesus informed me on how to raise teenagers. I mean, when we have to understand that taking on the character of Christ means setting down our presuppositions and assumptions about what is going on. I have to put down my own narrative about what somebody else's motivation is, where they're coming from. I have to see them through the lens of Jesus. I have to see them the way Jesus sees them. And it's not easy, and I hate it, and there's times when I just really want to be so convicted in the idea that this person's an idiot and they don't know what they're talking about, and if they just listened to me, life would go so much more easily. And it it doesn't work like that. I have to... I have to approach these things, and what I've discovered as a result of doing this, I have to approach them with the benefit of the doubt. I have to assume the best about this person, because this person is as made in the image of Jesus as I am. 
I can't say, I can see you all so much better now, um, I can't say that um, because Jesus has informed my point of view and because Jesus has given me um, this insight that you're wrong. Coming alongside, c- c- having Jesus come into a conversation, a contentious one or a, means that Jesus has informed both of us. I have to assume that Jesus has informed both of us. And what Jesus has informed both of us is, is based on who we are, who he knows us to be, and we have to use Jesus, we have to use the Holy Spirit to come to consensus together. And there's that in, in, in the last couple of years, certainly in leadership in the church here, but just in life, in, in, in you know, raising my kids, in, in the last two years, I mean, my gosh, um, dependence on the character of Christ to inform my, uh, the way I interact has, has been so invaluable to me. What you shared, I think, is so important, but I want to I push back, and, I want you to, and, I, and I'm, I'm saying this for all, our, all of our benefit, including my own. I would simply change the language of what you said. You said on a couple of different times, I'm supposed to, I have to. You're right. And I know and, where you're and, going, and, and you're absolutely the, right. We, we do this. This, this. The language is important. This is transactional language. I have to. I'm supposed to. No, no. You get to. Yes. I'm you deeply can, convicted you, of this, you, and I can't get out you, of the language. You can. It's, yeah. Because, again, transformation, Jesus is transforming you. Jesus is working. It's just, are you going to get out of the way, or are you going to continue to, to wrestle? <laughs> right. Are you going to make the work harder? Because Jesus is going to get what he wants. One way or the other, you're going to get broken down and become who you were created to be. That's the promise of Scripture. We mm-hmm. will be who we were created to be. Is that journey going to be one that is pleasant? <laughs> Or is that journey going to be where you feel like you're the definition of crazy, always doing the same thing and expecting different results while God continues to do that? And when we stop fighting is when we get the abundant life you were just talking about. Right. When we step aside and let... And much of the fighting comes out of even crazy, and you said it so well, of, well, I'm supposed to love this person. They're an idiot, but I'm supposed to love them. I have to love them. That's the fight. You're not fighting with the person now. You're fighting with Jesus. Okay, I'll love them because I'm supposed to. Rather than letting Jesus change you, and then when he changes you, you will love that person. It won't be the wrestling match anymore. You will just you will love them. We focus on the other person rather than on us. And the relationship gets so much better that the abundant life just comes in automatically. Well, and this it, person that you're at odds with is no longer that person because you've allowed Jesus to inform the way that you interface with Well, and something that you said, and this is kind of what we'll wrap it up, is if you walk away with anything, if Jesus reveals to us, empowers us to be fully human, then, guys, Jesus is our ultimate mentor. We all have mentors. But Jesus is numero uno. (laughs) Jesus is our definitive guide. We all have people we look to. Parents, other people have helped us to get where we will mention them. This helped me personally get this far in life. Jesus is your definitive guide. So many of us are caught up in Bible study. You've done years of Bible study. Some of you haven't done any Bible study. But let me take you to give you an example of what what I'm getting at here. Forget Bible study. How about Jesus study? Yes. Start studying Jesus. Start studying and, and practicing the character of Christ, as Christine said. And I'm not telling you now, well, you don't need your Bible anymore. That's not what I'm saying. When I say Jesus study over Bible study, study the practice and the character of Jesus because it's through the lens of the example, the teaching, and the character of Jesus that you understand the rest of Scripture. So if you're all of a sudden over the Bible and going, this is really hard, I don't understand it, okay, here are the things I'm supposed to remember, that's, not, that's Bible study, but it's studying Christ will help transform how you understand Scripture because you'll be reading it through, again, that example, that lens of the teaching and the character of Christ. Which you know, is relational, which is relational, not transactional. Which is not transactional. That's right. Bible study can become transactional. What am I getting out of this? 
You know, there was that acronym, uh, what would Jesus do? We all heard that one. And I, 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 I like that in the spirit of that, but it's deeper than that. It's this understanding of what is Jesus doing? How is Jesus teaching me, speaking to me? I love how you opened up and shared how to think about this, how to think differently about this, how to speak differently, how to engage and treat others the way that Jesus engaged and treated other people. And this couldn't be more timely, could it? Because we're living more and more in a world that is polarized where people, families, communities are saying, well, we can't be together anymore because we just can't have a conversation. We cannot get together without getting at each other's throats. Okay, but if, if you're a follower of Jesus in that environment, you don't have to go for someone else's throat. That may mean you may get beat up quite a bit. But it's in the beating up and in the loving in return that the com- communities are changed. That's how the victory comes. So, again, this is what it means. When we look to Jesus, we understand how we can be, who we are, what we're meant to be, and who we can be. Not only because of what Jesus has done, but because of what Jesus is doing in our lives through the Word and through the Spirit. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, through the Son of Man, your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, you redeemed us. You freed us from settling for being only human to leading us to become fully human as you created us to be. In saving us from death as the final word in our lives and giving us your spirit to be reborn, to learn, to grow, to mature anew, inspire us, O God. Teach us, guide us to become more and more like Jesus to live into the fullness and abundance of our true humanity, your image into which we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Shape and mold your, us, your church, into Christ's body so that together we might reflect Jesus' light in word and deed to a world that is consumed by darkness. This we ask in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.